Good morning and welcome. I asked Jermaine if he could please include that video because not only is it a powerful motivator for worship, and I don't know about you, but I am genuinely missing worshiping in song together with you all. But it truly sets the tone for today's message. We are three weeks away from Easter Sunday, and as a result, we, the elders at Fellowship Oshawa, decided to do a mini-series leading up to Easter. As such, we're going to pause our study of the Gospel of Matthew, and we'll be considering three big words in Scripture over these next weeks. Justification this week, sanctification next week, and glorification on Easter Sunday. We trust that these messages will give us a deeper understanding and appreciation of who Jesus is, a deeper understanding and appreciation of who we are in Christ, and a passion to love each other and love our lost neighbors, friends, and family as Jesus loved us, to give us a boldness to fearlessly proclaim the gospel of hope, the gospel of Jesus Christ to those lost souls. I was talking with my dad on the phone and he commented that it's interesting how with all of our information, our knowledge, and our technological advancement, God is able to bring the whole world with its economies and power structures to its knees with something you can't even see, and in a matter of weeks. And this virus isn't even all that deadly, relatively speaking. That said, COVID-19 has provided an unprecedented opportunity to preach the gospel and have people actually ready to listen. Oh, let's do it, brothers and sisters. Let's take every opportunity. As Peter said, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. 1 Peter 3, verse 15. Justification is a legal term. It means to be declared righteous, guiltless, to absolve or acquit. This legal interpretation is a consistent theme throughout the Old and New Testament, especially to the early church fathers who were accustomed in their culture to seeing a great deal of corruption with a different set of laws for those who had money or power. For example, in the ancient code of Hammurabi, It is laid down that if a citizen knocked out the tooth of another citizen, his own tooth should be knocked out. This is precisely that eye-for-an-eye type law that Jesus referred to in Matthew chapter 5. But if the victim was a vassal, a servant, it sufficed to simply pay a small fine. That servant did not receive the same justice that a man of means or power would. God has revealed himself as one who is completely just and impartial. And the writers of the New Testament, especially Paul, were meticulous in conveying that characteristic. Now to Romans. Please turn to chapter 3, the classic passage on justification. Paul writes this letter to the the Roman believers with great precision and irrefutable logic. In the first two chapters, Paul establishes how all mankind, Jews and Gentiles, everyone is guilty before God. We have all knocked out God's tooth, as it were, and now God is perfectly within his right to exact retribution, except that it is far worse. We have done so much more than knock out a tooth. 
we have mutinied against the rightful sovereign of the universe by refusing to obey his commands. And when the rightful son and heir came to us in person, we murdered him and usurped his throne. Ladies and gentlemen, this is us, each and every one. I hope this horrifies and grieves your heart as you acknowledge the truth of who you are in your sin. We are mutinous, murderous rebels, sometimes putting on a facade of obedience on the outside while being unwilling in our hearts to give him the worship and glory he is rightfully due. Or else being openly defiant. We have burned every bridge. And that's why chapter 3, verse 18 reads like this. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Let's continue reading. We're in Romans chapter 3, and we're going to start at verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that, it is, that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith, apart from the works of the law. In verse 23, Paul lays out the judgment on us concisely. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. On what has God based this judgment? On his law, which has been communicated to us. Now, our response might be, but I didn't know what God expected before this. Now that I know, I'll do it. But Paul has already clearly laid out in verse 20 that we can't resolve our situation by now performing the works of the law. The law has already been broken. And there's a cost that has to be paid by someone. When I was about eight or nine years old, we rode our bikes into town and we came by my teacher's house. She was so nice that I actually wanted to see her on a Saturday. I knocked on Mrs. Milner's door, but there was no answer. Myself and my brother and our two friends, we decided to check and see if maybe she was around the back. She wasn't. But, oh, her property? She had a ravine lot that dropped off. So that there was a walkout basement and a main floor deck 
and at the main floor deck, there was a wash line out to a pole. This was the greatest place ever to swing like Spider-Man across the yard. So we ziplined from the deck to the pole, then dropped and ran back to the deck, climbed up again and did it again and again and again until the wash line broke. At which point we decided we needed to be getting home. I felt terrible. Under the weight of conviction, I told my dad. We got in the car. We went to the hardware store for a new wash line and then headed to Mrs. Milner's where I confessed with huge sobs what I had done. She was so gracious. I loved that lady. She just passed away a few years ago. I bet she has no idea the impact she's made on my life. My point with this story is that I broke her wash line, but I had the resources. I'd had no resources with which to pay the debt I owed. If Mrs. Milner had chosen to forgive me of the offense, it would remove the offense, but not the cost. You see, she would have had to incur the cost. In my case, it was my father who incurred the cost of my offense. He paid for the new wash line. And I think he repaired the wash line too, if I'm not mistaken. Paul says we don't have the resources to pay for our offense by starting now to do what the law demands. We, we can't earn our own righteousness because we're not starting with a blank slate. We're already guilty by the time we even understand the standard. This is the spiritual poverty we talked about in the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, right? Blessed are the poor in spirit. They're the ones who recognize their spiritual bankruptcy. And the law, in fact, isn't even intended as a way to earn righteousness. It's designed to be a test, an analysis, if you will, to determine your essence, your nature. Through the law comes the knowledge of sin, it says in verse 20. This means that the law shows the sinner that they're sinful because they can't meet the standard of the law. The only one who can meet the demands of the law is the one who is sinless, who doesn't need to earn their righteousness because they're already righteous. I want you to try and remember, without looking them up, as many of the Ten Commandments as you can perhaps as a child in Sunday school or kids' church, you learned to memorize some of them. Likely, you had some of these. You shall not steal. You shall not murder. You shall not covet. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not lie. Isn't it interesting that oftentimes those are the ones that are most quickly remembered? Because they're very self-focused. But there's also... You shall love the, the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You shall have no other gods. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Now, take out the words, you shall, at the start of each commandment, and replace it with the phrase, the one who is righteous does. So, the one who is righteous does not steal. The one who is righteous does not murder. The one who is righteous does not lie. Do you see now how it's a test of your essential nature? In metallurgy, there are certain tests. They're called assays 
that are standards for determining the purity of the metal they are working with. Like gold, for instance. If gold is pure, then you can dip it in nitric acid and there will be no change. The nitric acid will remove impurities, even silver, but gold, gold will be untouched. There is only one who could pass the nitric acid test of the Ten Commandments. Only one whose name you could dip in the place of the phrase, the one who is righteous. His name is Jesus. He passes the assay for absolute purity. Jesus does not steal. Jesus does not lie. Jesus does not covet. In chapter 6, verse 23 of Romans, Paul communicates the sentence for the judgment of our sin. For the wages of sin is death, it reads. Every single member of the human race is under this judgment and condemned to this sentence. Though not all of us have yet died physically, being human does have a 100% mortality rate. And we've certainly come face to face with that in these last days, have we not? And in our sin, all of us are dead spiritually. Ephesians 2 verse 1 makes this very clear, that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. In order to stand a chance, we need forgiveness. But because we don't have the resources to pay the debt, someone else has to do so. Someone else has to choose to incur the loss so that we can be forgiven. And that someone else was Jesus. While verse 23 told us, uh, verse 23 of chapter 3, of course, have told us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Verses 24 and 26 tell us what God did about it and are justified by his grace as a gift. He took the death that we deserved for our sin, our disobedience, rebellion, and mutiny against God. He paid the full price for it on the cross of Calvary so that God's holy and righteous demands against sin could be met. He fulfilled the law to demonstrate that he alone was without sin and therefore qualified to be our substitute. So if we can't be justified or made right with God through what we do for him, how do we get right with him? How do we take advantage of the offer of forgiveness that he puts forth in Jesus? By faith in Jesus Christ. Notice throughout, that, throughout the passage, this phrase comes up again and again. Verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Verses 24 and 25, the redemption that is in Christ Jesus to be received by faith. Verse 26, the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And then in verse 28, Paul just slams it home, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. You can't earn your forgiveness. You can't earn your righteousness. You can't earn your justification. You can only receive the forgiveness, righteousness, and justification that comes by faith in Jesus Christ. John Piper said, The basis of our justification is Jesus Christ, obedient unto death in my place. 
Let me read that again. The basis of our justification is Jesus Christ, obedient unto death in my place. And notice how much further God takes it than just forgiveness. We discover this phrase in verse 26, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God must be just, for that's his nature. He is righteous and holy. But he also desires to justify. That too is his nature, for God is love. And justification has so much more to its meaning than just forgiveness. Understanding this will bring us great joy. Our hearts should overflow in thankfulness and worship to him. You see, justification involves the giving of something and the taking away of something. Romans chapter 4, verses 6 and 7 read like this. David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those, excuse me, whose lawful deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. So verse 7 describes what's been taken away, the lawless deeds and sins. Why? Because payment has been made. The sentence has been paid. But verse 6 describes how much further God chooses to go. God counts righteousness apart from works. Righteousness is what is given in the place of the sin that is taken away. That's why Paul says that by faith we are justified by his grace as a gift. Oh, brothers and sisters, as we read this and comprehend what's been done for us, do our hearts not swell and the tears come to our eyes? We who were just as likely to be the one shouting, crucify him, we were the ones he planned and purposed to justify. Like the song that we began with says, love moved first. I don't know about you, but I don't usually get emotional about legal terms. But there is so much beauty, so much love demonstrated in the planning and forethought that went into what justification would mean for us, that it becomes a tender term, a precious term. If you have placed your faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, then God has justified you. He has taken your filthy sin from you. He has washed you clean. And he has clothed you in the perfect righteousness that truly belongs to Jesus. You may have heard the catchy phrase, justified means it's just as if I'd never sinned. And that's true, but I think it's lacking. You see, if I'd never sinned, then I would have earned my righteousness. The beauty of justification is that I have sinned. I don't deserve to be considered righteous, but God in his matchless grace and mercy does it anyway, incurring all the cost to his own account. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21, a well-known passage says, God made him who knew no sin, that's Jesus, to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So justified means it's just as if I'd obeyed God as perfectly as Jesus did. That's how God now chooses to treat me. 
Are you in him this morning? Have you placed your faith in him for forgiveness and justification? If so, rejoice. The guilt is gone. The sentence will not be demanded of you. It has been paid by the Son of God. God will not hold you to account for a single sin that you commit. He punished his Son fully and completely in your place. And he transferred Jesus' perfect righteousness to your account. He now looks on you with the same pleasure with which he looks upon his Son. But this truth should also drive us to look with compassion and a burdened heart at our neighbors, our friends, our family members who don't know Jesus and spur us to love them and share the same gospel with them. Our crazy busy lives have been brought to a standstill. Many of the things that distract us have been taken away. People are in a position to listen and to ponder. Now is the time for bold proclamation of the gospel lovingly, respectfully, compassionately. And watch out for the lie of the devil that tries to convince you, oh, that's for other people. I'm not gifted with evangelism. That's exactly what he wants you to believe in order to shut you down. As a parent, could you explain the gospel to your kids? As a son or daughter, could you explain it to your parents? As a spouse, could you explain it to your husband or wife? then you can explain it to a neighbor, a friend, a loved one. God's not calling you to stand in a stadium packed with 100,000 people. That was Billy Graham's task, perhaps, and it would be illegal today anyway. He's just calling you to share with one. Who's that one going to be? Do it, and don't hold back. And if you're listening this morning and you don't know the forgiveness and grace that God offers, now is the time. Acknowledge your sin before him right where you are. Tell him you understand that you deserve death. But like a drowning person, you are grabbing hold of the life preserver he is willing to throw to you. That life preserver is Jesus and you desperately need him before you go under for the last time. Ask God for the forgiveness that is offered through faith in Jesus and bow your knee to the one and only King who deserves your worship and your loyalty. And then tell someone what you've done. You can tell me by sending an email to mike.fellowshiposhawa at gmail.com. That's mike.fellowshiposhawa at gmail.com. I would love to hear from you. Let's pray. Father, we are staggered as we consider the lengths to which you went to procure salvation and forgiveness for us. And then as if that wasn't enough, you went further. You justified us. You placed on us the righteousness that was due to Jesus Christ. And you made that possible by placing on him the sin and the penalty for it that was due to us. Oh, Father, we love you. We thank you for what you have done. And Father, I pray this morning, if there's someone who doesn't know you, that they would take that step today, that they would find themselves justified by faith in Jesus Christ. And we'll give you all the praise and glory in his precious name. Amen.